All right, welcome to episode two of the all-new National Pulse podcast. I'm Raheem Kassam, editor-in-chief of thenationalpulse.com, where we do real news and investigations. Live from Capitol Hill, a very snowy and icy and slushy, and yes, still occupied, Capitol Hill. I want to remind the audience, if this is your first time listening, this is the new National Pulse show. We are no longer on Real America's Voice at 3 p.m. The show will be coming to you all produced in-house, all done here by yours truly, and that means that we get to control the content more. It means we get to control the distribution more. It means we get to control the clips, what we play, how we do it. And most importantly, I don't have to break for ads every eight minutes, seven minutes in some cases. So this is it, the unadulterated National Pulse podcast brought to you by me. <laughs> I want to get started today. I had on my list of things to cover from today and over the last 24 hours, I had in front of me Lincoln Project, and we will absolutely get into the Lincoln Project. Also, the 42 executive actions that Joe Biden has enacted since he's been in the Oval Office. We'll get into that also. I have the full list up on thenationalpulse.com right now. You can go and see for yourself and I've actually done the hard graft, the legwork, gone through each of those executive actions and provided a little one line, even less in some cases, one word, description of what they do, of what the actual impact of that executive action is. And of course, the big one is the New York Times' front page, the 77 days where Donald Trump encouraged an insurrection. You see how quickly they've moved away. And in fact, I think in no small part, thanks to our reporting over at the National Pulse, you see how they've moved away from the narrative that President Trump went up on the ellipse that morning, gave a speech that inspired people to sprint across town, break the, you know, the time, uh, <laughs> the, the, the time barrier, break the speed barrier, travel backwards on the space-time continuum and somehow breach the walls of the Capitol building before he had even finished speaking. Suddenly, and I hope those of you out there who haven't seen this will go and look at our reporting on this for yourselves, suddenly that narrative doesn't work for the New York Times anymore. So they've put together a 10,000 word, 10,000 words. That's about a sixth the size of the average political book, by the way. They put together this article and we'll go through some of the claims that they've made later on in the show today. But barring those three things, I actually wanted to start with something different because as I was coming down here to the recording studio, the brand new recording studio here on Capitol Hill, I got a notification. I got a notification actually came from one of our Telegram groups. If you're not following us on Telegram, by the way, it's an incredible way to stay in tune with what we're doing, but also to talk to other people in the audience. It's very lively. It goes all day long. In fact, the only complaint I have about it is my phone doesn't stop buzzing all day long now because of all the notifications we're getting from all our different Telegram groups. So search the National Pulse and, of course, search War Room in Telegram. Uh, the URL is t.me forward slash National Pulse for the National Pulse thing, and then you can go and find all the others. But I actually got this notification from the Telegram group. Telegram group. And I started watching it and I hadn't realized quite 
what Bill Maher had said the other day on his show. For those of you that don't know, Bill Maher, very left-wing libertarian show host in the United States for decades now, uh, renowned uh, atheist, anti-theist, very, very, very left. I think he famously gave Barack Obama a million dollars or something like that. Anyway, very important, very massively, massively watched show. So I thought I'd try our new system out plugged in a few different cables just before I started to record this podcast. And let me see if I can actually bring the audio from Bill Maher into this show right now. Let's play it. We've heard a lot recently about the fact that maybe the virus did start in the lab. Let's talk about that. The fact that there is this lab, I think it's the only one in the world quite like it, in Wuhan, where it started. It would almost be a conspiracy theory to think it didn't start in the lab. <laughs> right? And... and and that theory was demonized at first, that, oh, it can't, that, come on, that's conspiracy thinking, that it would started in the lab. But it, it certainly is a 50-50, would you say that? Oh, uh, it's far more likely than that. As a matter of fact, right. I said, I think, in June that the chances that it came from the lab looked to me to be about 90%. Okay. Um, so this was never a conspiracy theory. In fact, that term is simply used to make it go away. It's a... a an obvious hy hypothesis that is in need of testing, and we are only now, a year in, getting to the point where we can discuss it out loud without being stigmatized. Okay. A big part of the problem, of course, is that we are so politicized, we're so polarized and partisan now right. as a country that if the wrong guy proposed this to begin with, and for half the country it was the wrong guy, then the rest of the country says, no way, no how, we're gonna call that a conspiracy theory, and, uh, and we're never gonna revisit it. And the fact is, that's not how science works. That is not science. You need, to, you need to say, I've got a pattern, I'm gonna make some observations, and I'm going to consider every possible explanation on the table, and did it leak from a lab? That was clearly from the beginning a possibility. Okay, so let me ask you this. Well, that wrong guy, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, of course, the War Room audience will know exactly who they're talking about there. They're talking about Stephen K. Bannon. They're talking about the very first episode of War Room Pandemic that we launched in January of 2020, when the rest of the media, and including the so-called experts, both in the media and in government, Dr. Tony Fauci, I'm looking at you specifically, was saying, don't worry about the coronavirus. Don't worry about the pandemic. It's not going to be that big. It's not going to affect America. Joe Biden was calling Donald Trump xenophobic for closing the borders to China when this virus first became known as a thing, a real big thing that had human-to-human -human transmission, remember? I probably don't need to remind many of you about this, but there is still a massive audience out there, a massive, massive audience out there, both in the United States of America and overseas that doesn't realize these things, that doesn't know this stuff was going on, that doesn't even know that we launched a pandemic show last January, over a year ago, and on the very first episode, I was there in person. I actually cut the music track together because we had such a short amount of time that we wanted to launch this thing in that we decided, hey, Raheem's going to sit there with a laptop and do it all himself instead of farming this out to some third party. We cut the tracks, cut the music, cut the open, did the show the very next day. Remember... We were still dealing with war room impeachment. The impeachment articles were being marched across in the U.S. Capitol building. That would be the first impeachment of President Donald Trump, by the way. And the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi was partying in Chinatown, saying there's no need to worry. Come out, come one, come all. There's not a problem. Gather 
close proximity. Tony Fauci was saying, it's not a big deal. You don't even need masks. Don't worry about it. He now claims, by the way, that he lied back then intentionally to save masks for uh, frontline healthcare providers. I actually don't buy that. Even though he's admitting he lied, I actually don't buy that. I think the reality is Tony Fauci both knew that he was implicated because of all the funding and all the background to this uh, this weaponized, the potential for this weaponized virus. So what is that? Well, that would be the gain-of-function experiments that Tony Fauci wanted, that Tony Fauci and Tony Fauci's NIH, Anthony Fauci, the doyen, the highest, by the way, highest paid government employee in the United States of America admitted that he lied to people, admitted spreading disinformation. What did that disinformation lead to? Well, if Tony Fauci is correct and masks do save lives and two masks save even more and three masks save even more, then he is admitting lying about something that has caused death. And I really want you to internalize that because Tony Fauci is the highest paid bureaucrat in the United States government with blood on his hands. There is blood on his hands. And I'm not sure that you can even have a straight-faced argument with people on the left about this thing. You know, about 30 seconds walk from where I sit right now, there is this placard that sits on a corner outside Mitch McConnell's house and it says it's not actually outside Mitch McConnell's house it's across the street from it it's not Mitch McConnell that put it up is what I'm saying but it's across the street from his house and it says thank you Dr. Fauci thank you Dr. Fauci thank you for lying to us thank you for deceiving us thank you for spreading disinformation thank you for being the most highest paid government employee who was in favor of these gain-of-function experiments that we now know, as you heard there from Brett Weinstein on the Bill Maher show, a higher than 50% likelihood of this being a lab-originated virus, a lab-originated virus at the P4 lab in Wuhan, China. And of course, we said that very thing on the very first episode of War and Pandemic. And we had experts on to talk about it. Dr. Li Minyan had left her home, left her family, sought refuge in the United States because she wanted to whistleblow and tell the world exactly what was going on, the cover-up by the Chinese Communist Party. And who else has been covering up for the Chinese Communist Party? And now you're getting into why Rahim finds it so important to play this Bill Maher clip as the very first thing on our second show here, on our second podcast. The World Health Organization that Joe Biden is launching America back into lied and covered it up. The so-called international community and all the health experts lied and covered it up. And why? The crazy, 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 crazy theorists of this will say because they want to kill us all, right? That there is this plan to eradicate humanity using this virus. I don't believe that. I believe this was a, a gain-of-function experiment that either went wrong or that the Chinese Communist Party knew could create damage that is almost irreparable to the Western world. That's what we say weaponized virus, right? Potentially weaponized virus. 
But underlying all of these things as well is 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 qui bono, right? Who benefits? Big pharmaceuticals companies have gotten even richer. The highest paid bureaucrats in the medical profession and in government have developed national and international platforms. There are so many reasons here be behind all this. There is so much to unpack. And people are still arguing, remember, about the Warren Commission. People are still arguing about what happened to JFK. You think we're going to get answers to how an international virus that killed millions upon millions of people and made sick tens of millions of people and destroyed billions upon billions of people's livelihoods, lives, trillions in dollars spent all around the world trying to plug this gap that was caused after we had to shut down our economies to slow the spread of the virus. You think we're going to get answers to that today or tomorrow or next week? Of course not. Of course not. And that is why it's so important that we continue asking these questions. And it's why it's so important that we continue to entertain every credible theory, every credible avenue of investigation here. Not take the line that the establishment media throws at us, that the big corporate media throws at us, and these healthcare lobbyists that masquerade as government scientific experts tell us. They told us, I mean, I don't know where you guys stand on this. I don't even know. Look, you can probably hear from my accent. I'm not from the United States of America, but I don't know where your country stands, for instance, on the assassination of, 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 of John F. Kennedy. I don't know what the kind of, I've never polled the general audience on this thing, but I'm pretty sure that most people, especially after you see the Oliver Stone movie, the, the, the it was Kevin Costner. And you go, they're up in the book repository, and you go, oh, three shots, marksman accuracy, six seconds, reload. Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I don't know if I'm going to get called a, a conspiracy theorist for saying that, that, that it doesn't make sense. Not that I have the answers, but that it doesn't make sense. Or that there at least should remain some question marks and there should at least be a credible investigation into any of those things, right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think I think the established audience of the National Pulse and this show, the, the first people to it, if you haven't experienced my work before, maybe go around and, and, and take, some, uh, take some temperature on this. They know that I'm not exactly a, a headbanger, right? I am, a, I am the kind of person who puts... 500 pages of documentation in front of me and goes through it with a highlighter and a pen and, and seeks the evidence and the science and the data. And guess what? When the facts change, so do my opinions. It's the old John Maynard Keynes quote. When the facts change, so do my opinions. What do you do? What do you do when the facts change? How do you account for changing dynamics and changing information and new things that are added in. I mean, this is what we're hearing now, right? This is a new thing that a lot of Americans are just coming to. The idea that this was made in a lab. And I just think it's so incredibly important for us to recognize what we're dealing with here. There are interests 
far and above and beyond truth gathering that seek to hide information from you, even if it's not here in the United States. Okay, let's just imagine for a second that every US bureaucrat is totally honest, is totally trustworthy, and the government always is totally transparent with its people. Let's just imagine that for a second. Imagine that world. Okay, that's the United States of America. There are still outside of that sphere of influence, outside of this nation, people who have a higher interest in hiding things from you about this virus than the American government would have, even if it was fully transparent, in telling you the truth. The World Health Organization, again, the Chinese Communist Party, again, every single expert all around the world who has lied over the course of the last year plus as a result of this. When did people know and what did they know? And those questions are going to be harder. And by the way, look, I know I know what is going to happen here. You know, we launched this podcast yesterday. I did a first trial run of the show yesterday talking about Janet Yellen and her vested interests and her ethics violations. And today I'm sitting before you and, and, and talking about Tony Fauci and the lab. And I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to report to her. We just went up on Apple Podcasts. We're going up on Google. In fact, I can read you the I can read you the the full list here of where we are with this podcast so far in just twenty four hours. Don't say I never work hard. In just twenty four hours, where you can download and subscribe to this podcast. And I know people are going to go around now and try and have us removed from all of these different platforms. And why? Am I am I, is there a vested interest in me? You know, saying things that are not true. Of course, there isn't. Of course, there is not. There, I, I, there is no benefit to me lying or making theories up. I don't sit here and go, "Ooh, what can I?" You know, what can I foist upon people today? What, what would be the logic behind that? When the truth is so crazy itself, why would you need to make things up? This has always been my frustration with a lot of the Q stuff. Right, ninety nine point nine percent of it. And I say that 99.9% of it because of what we're going to talk about next, which is the Lincoln Project. But as my problem with a lot of that stuff is, why delve into the fantastical when reality is wild enough and it's right in your face? So currently we're up on Spotify, we're up on Podbean, we're up on Amazon Music. I believe you can even listen to us through a, an Alexa device. I know a lot of you probably don't have things like that, and credit to you. Uh, but I believe you can if you have one of those things. Uh, you can just ask it to play you the National Pulse podcast. Uh, Amazon Music, as I say, Podcast Addict, Tune In Radio. I know a lot of you have that app, Stitcher, Player FM, Listen Notes. Uh, and I'm just informed that, again, we're up on Apple now, I think, as well, which is amazing because that's the uh, that's the top, top, top uh, podcast platform that there is out there. And in order for more people to find this show, to get to this show, you need to do me just a tiny little favor. Subscribe. First of all, hit that subscribe button. Leave a review and a comment. Whatever your platform is, whatever your preferred platform is, that really helps us, encourages us. And by the way, feel free to tell me what you don't like. Am I too loud? Am I too soft? Am I too boring? Am I repetitive? Just tell us exactly what you think. We are interested in your feedback. And I'm interested in having people on this show. We'll be bringing you guests. We'll be bringing our uh, senior investigative reporter, Natalie Winters, on this show. We'll be bringing other experts and friends of mine uh, in and around Washington, D.C., and indeed all around the world to discuss these issues with you. As we, as we arm ourselves with information, 
and you arm yourselves with information about what are the best steps you can take for your family. Number one. Number one, for your family. Number two, for your community. And number three, for your country. And if we get those things right, a lot of the rest takes care of itself. So let me get into this situation with the Lincoln Project now. Talk about vested interest and talk about vested interest trying to keep the truth away from you. The Lincoln Project was founded in December 2019, and it was founded by George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, Rick Wilson, Jennifer Horn, Ron St Steslo, Reed Galen, and Mike Madrid. And these people came together with one express purpose, and that purpose was to stop Donald Trump. They made it very clear. They made it clear with their advertising, with their website, with the interviews they gave. And indeed, of course, let's not forget the people that afforded them platforms and lauded them all along the way. Well, the Lincoln Project has often smelt very, very, very funny to me. And we've actually done some, some pretty great reporting, I think, if I do say so myself, I think, on the Lincoln Project uh, the fawning over the Lincoln Project that came out of the Chinese Communist Party. We also had an exclusive up on the site just a couple of days ago. If you missed that, here's what you look for. Type into your search engine, anti-Trump Lincoln Project funneled over $10 million to its founders' companies. Now, we put that story up just about the time when the corporate media was first starting to pay attention to John Weaver. Now, the corporate media has paid very close attention to John Weaver in the past. In fact, they've lauded John Weaver. They've made him the subject of a great many interviews. He's been involved, I think, with John Kasich and John McCain and John Huntsman. A lot of Johns. John likes Johns. John does like Johns. And now... We know that John Weaver is implicated in something even darker than his own organization funneling $10 million to its own founders. You know, I just want to remind you before we get into the darker side of the Lincoln Project that this is a an organization that raises millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And I will get into who gave them those millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. You will not hear a lot of this information anywhere else, ladies and gentlemen. And while we, when, especially when we are first launching this show, I will bug you to death. Please let other people know about it. Please take the effort to say to people, hey, Raheem is saying things and he's got the receipts. People, Other people don't say. And you could see that last year I was tweeting about John Weaver and about his exploits and his, let's say, extracurricular interests. But of course the establishment media didn't want to pay attention. We drove the story about their extraordinary grifting. $10 million to their own companies. $6.1 million to Summit Strategic Communications. That's co-founded by Reed Galen of The Lincoln Project. $4 million to Tusk Digital. That's Ron Steslow. $2.5 million to Anadot. $2 million to Ashton Media. $1.4 million to Jetmail Services. It goes on and on and on. 
they have enriched themselves often at a cost to some very 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 wealthy left 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 wing very wealthy donors it's funny how all of these super super rich people aren't actually socialists themselves in the way they live like to amass a lot of wealth themselves so when the new york times publishes the story this weekend headlined 21 men accuse lincoln project co-founder of online harassment i wasn't exactly surprised i tell you what I was surprised about was how short a story this actually was. What I was surprised about is how Mika Brzezinski gives George Conway an easy ride on her Monday morning show. Hey, by the way, um, George, did you know about this stuff to do with John Weaver? Oh, no, I read. I barely ever met him. Mm. You barely ever met one of the co-founders of your multi-million dollar organization. A very small-knit group of people that we honestly expected to believe that. Ladies and gentlemen, ask yourselves the question, would you set up a multi-million dollar organization with somebody you had barely met or barely knew or barely spoken to? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. It doesn't happen. That doesn't actually happen in the real world. But George Conway wants to spin you a line now that John Weaver has been caught doing what we're going to get into talking about in just a second and Mika Brzezinski said, okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Bye. No pushback. No, what do you mean? What do you mean? What are you talking about? You haven't met the guy. These people run in the same circles. They go to the same bars and restaurants. As Nigel Farage used to say of the political establishment in the United Kingdom, they marry each other's sisters. And we're supposed to believe, and MSNBC, MSNBC, your editorial standards showing, shining through there in that 20-second exchange. Between, and I'll try, I'll try and get the audio up into this, uh, into this podcast in production. But let's read through this New York Times story. I'll tell you, I'm surprised about how short it was. Because a story like this usually, I mean, think about it. Think about all of the sexual harassment, all of the Me Too stories we've seen over the last couple of years. Whether it's Harvey Weinstein-style stories, it's Jeffrey Epstein stories, it's uh, Charlie Sheen, all of these guys, whatever. All of these guys, the allegations against them. Brett Kavanaugh. And the New York Times manages to publish, oh, what am I going to say? I'm going I'm to guess on this one. Looks to me, and this is, just, this is just a quick editor's eye on this, looks to me like about 550 words. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll do a word count on this and and let you know how right or wrong I was. It looks about five hundred and fifty words. It's written by two reporters, Maggie Astor and Danny Hackim. It says Kitty Bennett contributed research, but let's go through this. John Weaver, a longtime Republican strategist and co-founder of the prominent anti-Trump group The Lincoln Project, has for years sent unsolicited and sexually provocative messages online to young men, often while suggesting he could help them get work in politics, according to interviews with 21 men who received them. That's their lead. That is also called burying the lead. 
because while the 21 men solicitation may seem like what you would lead with the next paragraph i would argue should have both been in the headline and in the lead remember the headline was 21 men accused lincoln project co-founder of online harassment here's the lead that the new york times is buried under the headline and under para one it says his solicitations included sending messages to a 14-year-old asking questions about his body while he was still in high school and then more pointed ones after he turned 18. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called grooming. That is grooming a child. That is pedophilia. That is grooming a child. And the New York Times leads with 21 men accused Lincoln Project co-founder of online harassment. No, no. Lincoln Project co-founder grooms 14-year-old boy is the headline. Should be the headline. It's extraordinary the lengths to why even when they're willing to cover these stories, they're still willing to cover up for their allies. Don't forget the Lincoln Project is and has been a major ally of places like the New York Times. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the Lincoln Project has received fawning coverage in the New York Times in the past. In fact, I have up on my screen in front of me a Facebook video of the New York Times interviewing John Weaver, just giving him an open platform. And by the way, if you go back to some of the reporting from The Atlantic in 2004, there were rumors and allegations back then. What is that, 17 years ago? About what John Weaver was doing. And young men being implicated in that. I want to look real quick at the uh, situation between the Lincoln Project and the New York Times because I wonder if my memory serves me correctly. And this is one of the areas where doing this as a podcast instead of a live show on video is going to make the content and the quality of the content of this show even better. Because I can do a lot more real-time research and production here. But I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves me correctly, that actually the Lincoln Project have paid the New York Times for advertising space going to go and uh, going to go and confirm that as well and bring you more information but they've surely paid a lot of money to other places Lincoln Project uh, ads have run on all different websites all different kinds of magazines publications radio stations and indeed television networks including and not limited to Fox News the Lincoln Project would actively target the what they called the audience of one they were trying to get Trump to see their ads and get upset with them due to the content of their ads. So they would air them, and Fox News took their money to air Lincoln Project ads. And I honestly want to know if Fox News is going to come out with a statement and say we shouldn't have done that, given, the, given what we know about John Weaver now, given what we know about these people. Now, the Lincoln Project, the, all the other co-founders, they say, oh, we didn't know it was happening. How could we have possibly known that this is what John Weaver was doing? Hold up. Let me give you some background information, okay? And again, this is the kind of information you just you won't get anywhere else. I have sat out at the Morton's Terrace, downtown of Washington, D.C., and had 
person after person come to me and say, hey, you heard the stuff about John Weaver? For the last year. And time and time again, I said to them, I have heard the rumors and I need somebody to back the story up. I need a witness to go on the record. I need somebody somewhere with some message to come forward because you can't just say that. You can't, as a publisher, I am a publisher, I cannot just go and print, hey, by the way, rumors are that, that John Weaver's a pedophile because I'll get sued to high heaven. And as you all know, or you should know, the National Pulse is a small outfit that operates purely off the back of your con contributions. It doesn't operate on the back of any corporate donations, no big investors, no billionaires, no millionaires. We exist because people go to the nationalpulse.com forward slash support and support our investigative work. And, and specifically, when we connect the dots on issues, like we're connecting the dots here in real time. But people used to come and they used to file through and say, hey, you know, we all know this stuff about John Weaver. Have you heard this stuff about John Weaver? Good, get me a source. Get me an on the record. Get me something. Oh, the New York Post is working on it. Is it though? Did it ever? Not before the election. When the Lincoln Project was at its most influential, that probably it will ever have been, before the election, plowing tens of millions of dollars into advertisements and activism all across the country. An entity that was co-founded by a paedophile. An entity, no less, that is incredibly important to Joe Biden. Think about it. We all know about the steel. But if you park election fraud allegations to a side for a second and ask yourself, well, what were the, some of the most important activist groups for Joe Biden? Now, the Lincoln Project is certainly in the top three. It absolutely is. And now what we know what we know about it, I think questions need to be asked about, well, why was nobody willing to come forward before the election with this information? It gets me very, 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 very angry. Because you know why it gets me very angry? Because I was there. Because I asked. Because I hounded people. You have to let me have the information. You have to let me interview these people. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Somebody else will take care of it. Now we get a 550-word article from the New York Times, which buries the lead. Okay. Speaking of the New York Times, and I'm aware of the time... Gosh, it goes flying by when I get on these rants. And that's the, the other benefit of this show in this new format. Is that sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, it can just be me and you. It can just be the two of us. We can just have a conversation. I can bring in guests for sure, and I can play you clips for sure. But sometimes it can just be an unfiltered conversation. I, I personally know that I enjoy podcasts most that way i used to listen to uh, many when i was back in the days that i used to go to the gym i would listen and i would love 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 when it was just the host talking to me about all the things they know all the insider baseball reading me into the conversation and that's what this show is going to be it's not a bad uh, strap line actually is it the national pulse reading you into the conversation hmm. 
We'll think about that. But the New York Times, the New York Times, of course, is now leading and led yesterday and is leading all today with, by the way, for a publisher, that is a major, major investment in one story. Leading with this article, 77 Days, Trump's Campaign to Subvert the Election. And this article is written by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven authors. And, of course, a research staff. And it's 10,000 words long. And if you've got the time, ladies and gentlemen, I'd love to go through this with you. I'd love to go through it with you right now, in fact. Settle in. We've got a, we got a little, little time ahead of us. I'll try, I'll try and keep it brief, but, but, but also as comprehensive as possible. But I actually want to read from this for you. Because I went through this, it's not often that I'll actually go through a full long read piece like this. They call them long reads, right? A full long read piece like this because it's often not worth it. It's not worth it if you're even on side with their issue and it's not worth it if you're on the other side of their issue because typically they're boring. And this one's no different. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you that way. This one is no different. But I did read it on the basis that I thought, well, maybe they've got some interesting information. Maybe there's something in there that I haven't heard before. Maybe there's a new argument they're making as to why there wasn't election fraud. And guess what? There just was not. We begin. By Thursday, the 12th of November, President Donald J. Trump's election lawyers were concluding that the reality he faced was the inverse of the narrative he was promoting in his comments and on Twitter. There was no substantial evidence of election fraud and there were nowhere near enough irregularities to reverse the outcome in the courts. President Trump did not, could not win the election, not by a lot or even a little. His presidency would soon be over. Allegations of democratic malfeasance had disintegrated in embarrassing fashion. A supposed suitcase of illegal ballots in Detroit proved to be a box of camera equipment. Dead voters were turning up alive in television and newspaper interviews. The week was coming to a particularly demoralizing close. In Arizona, the Trump lawyers were preparing to withdraw their main lawsuit as the state tally showed Joseph R. Biden Jr. leading by more than 10,000 votes against the 191 ballots they had identified for challenge. As he met with colleagues to discuss strategy, the president's deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark, was urgently summoned to the Oval Office. Mr. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudolph W. Giuliani, was on speakerphone, pressing the president to file a federal suit in Georgia and sharing a conspiracy theory, gaining traction in conservative media, that Dominion Systems voting machines had transformed thousands of Trump votes into Biden votes. Mr. Clark had warned that the suit Mr. Giuliani had in mind would be dismissed on procedural grounds, and a state audit was barreling towards a conclusion that Dominion machines had operated without interference or foul play. Mr. Giuliani called Mr. Clark a liar, according to people with direct knowledge of the exchange. Mr. Clark called Mr. Giuliani something much worse. And with that, the election law experts were sidelined in favor of the former New York City mayor, the man who was once again telling the president what he wanted to hear. From the outset, ladies and gentlemen, you can already see the narrative that's being pushed there, promoted, uh, established. And that is not a narrative befitting a newspaper. That is a narrative befitting a storybook. A storybook written by people with a political narrative to push. This this isn't a news article. This is an opinion piece. And it's a 10,000-word opinion piece written by seven authors. You know, one of the other things I love about doing this in a podcast version is you heard no break there between what I last said and what I'm saying now. But actually, I hopped off 
paused the podcast to do a live hit with Dr. Sebastian Gorka on his radio show. We have more over the course of the day as well. But <laughs> maybe just a matter of convenience for me. But it allows me to go and do other things and, and to, to, to broaden this audience at the very same time, something I couldn't do before. Such are the benefits of working for yourself. I want to get back now to this New York Times article. And specifically, as you go through this opinion piece that's dressed up as news, you start to come across things that just give away the case. The case being that the New York Times, all it's trying to do with this is establish a narrative that can be used by Democrats in impeachment trials, right? In the Senate trial that is coming up. They're not trying to report the news here. They're functioning as a political opposition research network. They want people to be able to go, they want Democrats to be able to go into the chamber and quote from the New York Times because of course in the minds of the Democrats, in the minds of some of the country unfortunately still, the New York Times is still a credible newspaper. Even though it dedicates only 550 words to a pedophile and buries the lead doesn't even put it in the stand first and even though they've worked with and for and on behalf of and around the Lincoln project for a number of years boosted John Weaver in fact the New York Times published on the eve of Operation Barbarossa the largest military endeavor in Nazi Germany the New York Times published without criticism extracts from Mein Kampf. Look it up. The New York Times published op-ed after op-ed and editorial after editorial slamming Republicans who wanted uh, to allow black people to vote in America to expand the franchise. Don't believe me? Look it up. The New York Times is actually owned its ownership records go back to pro-slavery activists. And this is the New York Times that clubs us around the head now with the words Nazi and fascist and racist. It is a paper built on racism and fascism and disinformation and lies. And they're fascists in chief. The reporters who put together this phony story they are just the new people running the Hitler op-eds. They are just the new people attacking the right for expanding the franchise. It's just a continuation, ladies and gentlemen. It's a continuation of a grand, historical, bigoted paper. And I want to come to this paragraph specifically that stands out to me. It says, yet, as the suits failed in court after court across the country, leaving Mr. Trump without credible options to reverse his loss before the Electoral College vote on December 14th, Mr. Giuliani and his allies were developing a new legal theory that in crucial swing states, there was enough fraud and there were enough inappropriate election rule changes to render their entire popular votes invalid. Let's do a little bit of conversion into English on that, if you don't mind if you will entertain me for a second. Let's convert that paragraph to English, because that's gibberish. It's word salad. It, In fact, if honestly, if somebody sent that to my desk as an editor, if somebody sent that to my desk, it would have a big red strike through on it. Do it again. This means nothing. Does it even need to be included? Quite frankly, it's such 
garbled nonsense. I'm going to read it again to you. Yet, as the suits failed in court after court across the country, leaving Mr. Trump without credible options to reverse his loss before the Electoral College vote on December 14th, Mr. Giuliani and his allies were developing a new legal theory. That in crucial swing states, there was enough fraud and there were enough inappropriate election rule changes to render their entire popular votes invalid. Now, you and I know, because you and I are actually greater experts than the seven who wrote this article in the subject of election fraud. And by the way, I've been writing about election fraud for years. I have actually been involved with election fraud cases. My reporting was one of the reasons that a major mayoral candidate in London was stripped of public office after being elected because there was so much fraud in that district. Tower Hamlets. Again, look it up. Tower Hamlets. Lutfer Rahman. I went down there with a camera and filmed a lot of what was taking place. I had signed I had signed documents, witness statements to tell the police what I had seen that day. I know election fraud better than you, Maggie Haberman, better than any of these New York Times hacks. So let's take it from the top here. Quote, yet as the suits failed in court after court across the country. Well, fundamentally, firstly, that is simply a falsehood. And you know it's a falsehood, and I know it's a falsehood, and you can look that up as a falsehood. Enough people online, enough credible websites, enough authoritative places. You can even look at it on the court websites themselves for crying out loud. And yet this is the hat they're trying to pull over your eyes? The suits didn't fail in court after court across the country. They weren't heard. Oh, I understand that you can do some semantics around that. Oh, well, a failure is a failure to be heard. No, no. A suit that fails is a suit that's heard and fails on the merits, but we didn't get to the merits part. We were never allowed the conversation. We were never allowed to see the evidence. The public was shut out of courtrooms in the very same way that the public is now shut out of their own Capitol building on the basis of lies. As the suits failed in court after court is not true find it out for yourself if you need to of the 80 something cases how many were heard and how many were tossed out on standing lack of standing procedural stuff the type of stuff that you invoke when you really desperately don't want a case to be heard if they were so keen to prove that there was no fraud if they were so keen to humiliate the people that have alleged election fraud if they were so keen to drive the message home that donald trump and rudy giuliani and everybody else is lying to you about election fraud why were they so keen to not have the cases heard but to have them tossed out on procedural grounds why and I want you to ask that to every single person that you know, and we all know them, every single person that you know out there that says, Haha, there wasn't fraud, you lost. Just ask them the question, if that's the case, why? And, and ask them in a very calm tone to it, like me. Why would they refuse to hear the evidence? Oh, because you filled in this form wrong. Right. And if people aren't willing to understand what that means and what that says, maybe get them to watch JFK the movie. And if they still can't get to grips with that, then guess what? They're lost. 
They're lost. They have decided on a particular narrative. It comes back to the first thing I said, one of the first things I said on this podcast today, right? When the facts change, so do my opinions. What do you do? But they won't. They won't change their opinions on the basis of changing facts, on the basis of evidence. They will stick, and that's called rigid ideology. And that's dangerous. That's extreme. (laughs) This paragraph is very important because it then goes on, you know, that in crucial swing states, there was enough fraud and there were enough inappropriate election rule changes to render their entire popular votes invalid. Okay, euphemism, okay? Strike, red strike, red pen. There were enough inappropriate election rule changes. What the New York Times should be saying there is that bureaucrats changed the way elections were held without going through the state legislatures. And that's true. <laughs> that's not a conspiracy theory, right? That's not that's not wild or crazy or anything that's beyond demonstrable. It's factual that states changed the way they conducted elections without consulting the state legislatures. And who by the U.S. Constitution is tasked with running elections that would be the state legislatures it's not down to some bureaucrat in a newly formed covid awareness department it never has been and never should be it's not down to the governor it's not down to the attorney general it's not down to anyone but the state legislatures and the state legislatures did not change the way i.e the representatives of the people did not change the way the people was supposed to vote and allowed to vote and what counted and what didn't count and what rules and mechanisms and safety procedures were in place. They didn't do that because if they had done that, there would be no argument. There would be no case. I would be sitting here today and it would be a totally different conversation. When the facts change, so do my opinions. But it didn't go down like that, did it? What happened was panicked bureaucrats, some who were doubtlessly in on the steal and saw the opportunity, took it. Changed the rules by fiat, by executive fiat. That is to say, at the stroke of a pen, rather than through an elected body or with the consultation of the public. Or any feedback mechanism, by the way. For the public. Oh, if you don't like the way we change the rules, don't vote for us next time. Problem is, we don't vote for bureaucrats. So there's no now, now no even feedback that the public can do on the people that change the rules. What does that sound like to you? I'm going to keep talking like I'm speaking to people who are unconvinced of this because I want you to share this with them and say, listen to this guy. And do you have answers to his questions? And if they do, well, I'd love to hear them because I am in this up to my neck every single day. So send this. Send this to your friends who don't believe that there was election fraud. Post it in groups. Put it in the Democrat-run Facebook groups and whatever it is, right? Tweet it under their tweets. Send it. I want this under Joe Biden's tweets. 
flood the zone with this information and see if anybody comes back to me. Because I've asked a lot of people to debate me publicly on this issue and nobody seems to want to. Isn't that strange? Isn't that just downright kick you in the crotch strange? I realize I've been going an awfully long time now today on just our second episode, so I'm going to wrap it there for now. We'll have to wait for tomorrow to go through these 42 executive actions, and I know uh, the people who listened to yesterday's show are going, no, you said we would do that today. But uh, I don't want to bore you to tears, and also uh, the time as it is right now, by the time I finish cutting this, uploading it, and by the time you finish listening to it, hopefully, we'll be on live for another War Room episode. So I've got to go back across to the studios. I want to thank you for tuning in today to our second episode of the National Pulse podcast. If you like our work and if you want to support what I do, what we do over there on the site, it is thenationalpulse.com forward slash support. The website is real. No, got that wrong. <laughs> the website is fundrealnews.com. If you go to the nationalpulse.com forward slash podcast, you can find everywhere that you can download and share this show. I really want you to subscribe pretty please and share this with your friends. We'll be covering new topics, new issues in, as you've learned from today, glorious detail every single day in these dulcet tones. You can count on it. And I may even start doing a weekend show as well if there is enough demand for it. You guys blow me up all across telegram and twitter and gab and everything i'm on all of those platforms you can search me at raheem kassam r-a-h-e-e-m-k-a-s-s-a-m and of course the national pulse the national pulse uh, i've been on a, a magnificent number of interviews where they say the national post no the national post is a canadian website the national pulse p-u-l-s-e is our website stay tuned stick around We'll have a new show for you tomorrow. Thanks for being here.